Welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We read, write, and record on the traditional territories of the neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. Our slogan is, listen local, think global. This is season four of Watershed Writers, and I'm your host, Tannis MacDonald. I'm a professor and poet, a researcher and reviewer, a writer of creative nonfiction, and an editor. I'm also a prairie person living in Kitchener-Waterloo, and I'm a big, big reader. I love talking about books, and I love to talk to writers, especially those who live and work in the surrounding area. The local looms large on Watershed Writers. I have the distinct pleasure of welcoming to this episode the Kitchener poet Chris Banks. I've known Chris since my early years in the region, and he's the author of seven books of poetry, the most recent of which is Alternator, newly out from Nightwood Editions. Let me tell you, the reviews have been stellar. In BC Review, Marguerite Pigeon wrote, A car's alternator turns mechanical energy into electrical charge. Spark plugs use the charge to ignite combustion. Just so does Chris Banks' convert experience. In comes the matter of daily life. Out onto the page go energetic bursts of memory, observation, cultural detail, and idiomatic turns, sparking poetry. Kim Vonner, in her review in Curiosities, notes, You'll find yourself as a reader tumbling through an endless stream of quirky but wise observations and reflections on contemporary society. Chris Banks has been awarded the Jack Chalmers Award for Poetry, and he's been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. His poetry has been widely published in the United States and in Canada. Chris has also been working on a book of essays, and he was a finalist for the Edna Stabler Award for a nonfiction essay as offered by the New Quarterly in late 2023. Before we start, I want to issue a little bit of a content warning. Chris and I talk frankly about mental health and anxiety in this interview. And while most of our talk is about maintaining good mental health, sometimes we talk about what it means to be in a hard place. If you are in a hard place right now, it might be better to wait to listen to this interview. It's okay. It'll be here when you are feeling better. Welcome, Chris Banks, to Watershed Writers. Thank you, Tannis. It's great to be here today. It is great to have you. And I want to congratulate you on the recent publication of Alternator, which is, if I'm right, it's your ninth book of poems. Is that right? It is my seventh book of poems, but I have an eighth done, and I have a ninth nonfiction book that I'm currently trying to find a home for at publishers. So I have nine books, but this is my seventh. You are very prolific. You know, hearing that you have, you know, another one in the works and a nonfiction manuscript that's that's mm -hmm. making the rounds, I think I want to know your secret to writing so much and publishing so often. I don't know if there's a secret other than my apprenticeship was very, very long. I only really started writing well at the age of 30, and that was after an MFA and, and a failed poetry collection manuscript that uh, was good, but not good enough to be published. So I've always just sort of been a hard worker since about the age of 30 on. And so I am always trying to stretch that creative muscle. Indeed, indeed. 
And I have to talk about something that I really noticed when I was reading Alternator. I, I've been really enjoying it. And I'm a, a great proponent of reading poetry books several times. So I'm on my third time through. And one of the things that I noticed and really appreciate about Alternator was your emphasis on both the problems and the pleasures of writing poetry in you know, contemporary small city North America. You live in Kitchener, right? And I also know, as, as you write it, it's the, the late capitalist dream of the 21st century. Yes. Uh, I want to start by asking you to unpack that phrase for some of our listeners who might not be so familiar with it and mm -hmm. think a little bit about how that kind of urgency moves the poems. Okay. Well, it's true. You know, the first poem, it's a long poem in the collection called Core Samples of the Late Capitalist Dream. And as far as that phrase, late capitalism, I really take that to mean things like the loneliness of self-checkout machines, the dehumanization of uh, work, especially lower paying work. Uh, the anxiety of climate change, which is the climate crisis, which is real, white fragility, unbridled materialism, uh, you know, the endless social media that was meant to connect us, but really makes us feel more and more disconnected. That's what I sort of mean by that phrase. And so those issues uh, really thread themselves through not only that long poem, but through all the poems in the book. I know a lot of it reminded me of a favorite poem of mine, W.H. Uh, Auden's September 1st, 1939, in which he says, we must love one another or die, right? And he's writing that at the beginning of Germany's invasion of Poland in 1939. And what he sees as the, as the crisis to come, right? The crisis yeah. that was in many ways already happening, but uh, about to be escalated. And yeah, and I, and I read some of that urgency that it's, you know, if we don't start loving each other now, there's we're running out of time, right? So yeah. to me, this was a book about... Uh, both, um, yeah, about both of those things, those those pleasures and those problems mm. of living today. Yeah, I think that's a very salient point. I love that Auden quote, uh, even though I'm pointing out a lot of terrible things, <laughs> I think, in the book about our modern society, like skyrocketing gas and food prices or the impact of big box stores on community or the hunger or whole people's souls they try to fill with endless Amazon gadgets. I think ultimately the poems are also hopeful, or I'd like to hope there's a little space. I've made space in the poems for hope. Oh, no, there's definitely space in the, in the um, poems for hope. And I think that's why I think it's it's a, a good work, because it takes on all of those issues. Although it's not really an issue book either. It's a, it's, you know, it, it's a book of poems that contemplates what it's like, what it really takes to survive and, and thrive under um, difficult conditions, right? And I have to say that uh, <laughs> I was present at the launch of Alternator uh, last month, as you know, and I just have to say what a love fest it was. <laughs> it was so great to be in that audience and to feel everyone rooting for you. But personally, it had been a long time since I have been at a launch where someone's family attends. Right. I feel like I've been at a lot of launches that you know, are put on by the publisher or are in a venue where, 
you know, it's in a bar or a place where not everyone feels welcome. And I just... Yeah, it was very special, right? Because there was family there. There was uh, many colleagues, old friends, a former principal of mine came with his wife. So it was a special night. Uh, I really loved it. I gave what I thought was a terrific reading because I, I could feel that love from the crowd. So yeah, the book launches, I've had many, many over the years. And these ones where your friends, your colleagues, your family are able to attend in your own small hometown, those are the most special for me, for sure. I want to talk a little bit or ask you to talk a little bit about putting the collection together because, you know, I think sometimes that's mysterious for people who haven't uh, written uh, a book and it's even more mysterious for people who tend to not read a lot of collections of poetry. So I'd like to unpack that a little bit. So when you were thinking of putting the collection together, can you walk us through the process of choosing what to include and maybe more importantly, what you decided wouldn't go in this collection for a variety right. of reasons. In the pandemic, I wrote two poetry manuscripts. They were rough, but there was about 50, 55 poems in each manuscript. One was called Alternator and was full of these sort of long, lanky poems, lightly surreal poems that I've sort of do about 30 to 32 uh, line length. And the other was, of course, a, a book of a 55 narrative sonnets. I had just read Frank, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later by Diane Zeus. And uh, so I was looking for a way to get back to writing more autobiographical poems, poems about my life experience. So I, I submitted those two manuscripts saying, you know, this is what I've been doing during the pandemic. My publisher, editor, friend, Silas White at Nightwood Edition says, listen, you, you are such a prolific guy. Why don't we boil down uh, these two sections in the book? Of course, you don't want to hear that. You want to just be praised and told you're, you're great <laughs> and everything else. But so what basically happened there was I started thinking about what he said, and I started thinking about an interview I heard with Sharon Olds and Sharon Olds talking about how she wrote like 120 or 130 poems for Stag's Leap. Uh, but only, I don't know how many got actually got into that manuscript, 60 maybe, I don't know. So I was really taken by someone who's such a great poet, such a force in poetry, talking like that. And so I really started to get on board with the idea that, okay, I wrote 55 sonnets, but I'm only going to include 24. And it doesn't mean the others aren't great or, or very good, but they're not superior in the way that these, I think, 24 that I've chosen are. And so I really started to think, let's make this book special. So I chose the best poems uh, for that section and, and for the alternator section. And then Silas asked me to do something I absolutely did not want to do, which was write some short poems. I wrote a lot of short poems in my first two, even three collections. I've been told I'm very good at them. I, I just don't find them very interesting so much anymore. But I, I sort of met them halfway, and that's when I decided I'm going to write a long poem, but I'm going to write a long poem in short sections. So I chose this sort of six-couplet, almost guzzle-like form. I ended up writing 33 sections and 18 were in the book. So yeah, there was a lot of revision, even before I sent it off to my freelance editor, Virginia Conchin, who did an absolutely amazing job with the collection. And then it got sent off to Silas, 
who had his own thoughts about uh, you know lines and uh, and certainly his idea was to lead with the long poem, which I think was a great idea. He said, let's really start with a bang here, something different. So yeah, like there was a lot of talk. There was a lot of collaboration as to what this book was going to look like. That's one of the joys of of publishing a book, right? That you spend so mm -hmm. much time with the work on your own, and then you invite someone else into it to say, all right, here's what I've got. Well, what do you think? You know? Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. And my writer's craft students, my grade 12 writer craft students have a really hard time with that concept that so many people, even before you get it out into the world as a book, will have eyes on the work and have their own thoughts on it. They're learning, and I constantly need to relearn with every book that I publish. I mean, I think it's it's particularly a kind of bone of contention when publishing poetry because, or a surprise to people when, when poetry is published, mm -hmm. uh, because everyone hears about sort of the editor that makes the novel, you know, sparkle or or you know, mention something that changes the uh, the novelist's point of view. But it's talked about less in poetry, and I can't think of any time I've written a, a book of poems and not had the editor step in and say, I really like this, but we want more of this. We want less of this. That's we, right. You need to, you know, you need to do work on this section because it doesn't quite do it yet. You're right. I mean, there is a moment where you go, oh, I just wanted to be praised. Yeah. <laughs> then also a moment where I, I know for me, relieved that someone has read me so closely. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think that was the real joy of working with Virginia and Silas. Virginia had like five, six pages of notes when she came back with edited uh, manuscript for me. She had really great ideas for lines or, or tweaking poems or changing titles of poems. Uh, things that I would not have thought of. And so that was really beneficial. I absolutely 100% will be using her again later on if I ever finish this manuscript I'm working on now. So yeah, I really do enjoy it. But I think anyone who says, you know, they're not really secretly would love a little bit of praise right off the bat. I think they're liars because I, I've, <laughs> I've felt that all my life and I don't think that will ever go away either. But, but yeah, absolutely. Editors, copy editors, these are necessary people who save you from yourself a lot of the time. Originally, I, I formed a question about in what ways mm -hmm. did you surprise yourself when you were writing right. this collection? But now I think I should ask a question about not only how did you surprise yourself, but how did your interlocutors surprise you with what they, they wanted? How did your editors yeah, surprise you with what they thought the collection was about? The main way was like I said, Silas saying, hey, these aren't two separate manuscripts. This is going to be one fantastic book if you you let it be. That was really the big surprise there. You know, the other thing, of course, that surprises me is that I went back to like talking about my life experience. I went through a very difficult time where I separated from my, my ex-wife. I was dealing with alcohol dependence and, and went to rehab. And, you know, I was a young single father. There were a lot of things that were not going well for me. And I did not want to talk about these experiences. Uh, they were just too painful. So I had no idea how to go back. So I think that was when I made the leap to, to more lightly surreal work. 
influences like Bob Hickok and Dean Young, even Kim Adonisio, uh, and moving away from the more confessional sort of work of, I don't know if that's a, the right word, he would be so mad at me for saying that, of Philip Levine or Larry Levis, but they were big influences. But of course, my life has been very, very good the last five years. My mental health is, is excellent. I've been sober from alcohol for eight years, so I, I don't mind talking about these things now, of course, because life is pretty wonderful at the moment. So I think that was a real surprise that I started to bring in some more really autobiographical narrative poems back into the fold. That's great. Uh, thank you for, for uh, mentioning all of that. I, I think it's mm -hmm. an important conversation, particularly when we talk about where art comes from. There's a romantic idea that, you know, one has to be, uh, you know, in an altered state to create. Right. And that might be so for some people, but it's not so for everyone and it's not healthy for everyone. So, no, um, exactly. you know, I don't want to be all puritanical, but there are lots of people who, you know, have to manage their anxiety first. And that's, a, that's an important conversation. The surprise for me these last five years is that I've written way more poems now than I did when I was younger and was drinking and hanging out in bars and going to readings in bars. And I rarely do that now. And I write so much more than I ever did when I was a young person and, and worried about such things. Okay, I'm going to ask you to, uh, can you read from Alternator for us? Sure, I'm going to read today a poem called Penny Arcade from the middle section of the book. I've chosen this because I think it talks about the making of art and poetry, but it also brings in things like the climate crisis, 80s pop, and lots of my little, uh, you know, obsessions. So, Penny Arcade. The Penny Arcades are no longer accepting pennies. Climate change is like slow dancing on the Titanic after its screaming argument with an iceberg. Once the water reaches your trousers, it's already too late. I burned down the art school. Certainty scares away what surprise feeds on like a wolf wearing a cowbell, stalking mule deer. Building a poem is like building a spider web without spinnerets. So instead of silk, you're stuck with popsicle sticks, colored yarn, and too much glue. The resemblances are striking. I need a dialysis machine for my too human anxiety. A little blood circulation, butterflies, and pizzazz go a long way in making me feel like a real artist. A poet who brought a flashlight to a pillow fight. Like a 13th century astronomer discovering the absence of celestial spheres. Plato, you idiot. Wisdom secondhand is still wisdom. There's no rewind button to life, so breathe and pace yourself. Try singing some 80s pop or playing gin rummy with the imagination. Pay the ransomware, but no, it will not necessarily restore your immortal soul or the glory days of English departments. Usually when someone takes a scythe to the purple irises, I'm the first one to pick up the fallen blooms. Have you read this anthology of smoke, fires new, and selected flames? When you are done, put out the embers, but don't leave me alone. My coupons for mere living are forfeit in the dark. Thank you so much. It's uh, good to see the, the glory days of uh, English departments preserved even briefly. <laughs> I know. 
right? <laughs> I, well, I try. I try so hard to, you know, I encourage my students to go into English, uh, and certainly some do, but most are really um, buckling under the anxiety and pressure to go into STEM. So I really concentrate on saying, hey, kids, you're going to have electives and you really should take this really wonderful second year English course because it's good for you. It's good for your soul and uh, it will be enjoyable. And I really, you know, talk about the different types of courses they can take in English. But, yeah, it's it's always a, a struggle right now. Does the study sure. of the humanities are, yeah. have been in peril really for the last decade or, or more? Yeah, big changes in education after COVID for sure. Um, I wanted to look at something else there. Oh yes, I need a dialysis machine for my too human anxiety. Um, there are a lot of metaphors there about the yeah. take on a bodily vehicle to talk about like the tenor of, of emotion, right? Yes. So we're talking about the way metaphor works. That's something I think you return to a number of times here. And how long have you been working with, with that kind of uh, formulation? The idea of turning like anxiety or depression and, and sort of trying to link that to aspects of our daily lives, you know, like the idea of dialysis. I'm not a doctor. It just seemed like a, a kind of a humorous poke at anxiety, uh, but with like this real element of truth, shadow of truth to it all. I take pills to manage my generalized anxiety disorder, but it never really takes it fully away and it can get really triggered depending on world events or what is happening in my personal or my work life. And so, yeah, I look for ways in which to communicate, not that, oh, I'm anxious, but in a way that will make people connect that feeling, uh, not only to their own life, but to the society we live in which is full of prescriptions and puppy mills. I think short story writers, you know, they always go, go back to that iceberg idea, you know, the Hemingway idea of the tip of the iceberg. Well, I think I'm doing something similar in the poems. I'm trying to give this illusion that there's so much causing me to be anxious uh, about uh, how uncertain the 21st century is. You know, I think a lot of poets are really mining, mining, mining their childhood, especially poets my age, because it, there's this real nostalgia for the 20th century when at least some things seem to make sense. And the pace of life is so accelerated. There are so many problems facing us, grave problems. And I think because of all of these things, I also try to weave in a little humor into the poems to start and lighten the weight a little bit of how these poems hit when people read them. When Donna Morrissey was here uh, in Waterloo last year when she was a writer-in-residence at Wilfrid Laurier University, a lot of uh, emerging writers asked her, you know, how do you write about such personal things and how do you, how do you, how do you manage it? And one of the things that Donna said many times, I heard her say many, many times, is that you need to write from the scar and not from the wound itself. Right. Right. Because if you're writing from the wound, the writing isn't going to be good. You're going to be traumatized and, mm -hmm. and it's just nothing's going to work. So you have to wait until it scars over mm -hmm. at least a little. And I appreciated your comment about anxiety never truly going away, just becoming yes. more manageable right? right, on a daily basis. So I, I was interested in that, that idea of the scar and the wound and how it does and, and doesn't apply to mental mm -hmm. health, right? 
so yeah, I, I love that humor. I, I know I'm thinking of moments where I laughed out loud reading this book. I was thinking of there's a poem <laughs> called New Apostles, and it's yes. probably because you and I are close to the same age. And you you wrote, "Am I a frog singing at Carnegie Hall, or am I slowly being boiled alive?" Right. And <laughs> for anyone who knows that reference, the Warner Brothers cartoon, yeah, uh, with the with the singing frog who who is That's discovered right. by the construction worker and will only sing in front of the construction worker and yeah. not for anyone else. And of course, and and the horribleness too of that that metaphor of you can put a frog in a in cold water and, and slowly mm-hmm. and slowly boil it, right? It was just sort of a I mean, just a creepy and and so yes, yeah, some of this humor is I laugh at it and then I think, oh, should I be laughing at that? Because you know, sure. it's it's kind of it's kind of awful, right? And I think it's it's intended. Right. You intend it to be kind of awful. Yes, I do. And I'd like to juxtapose different conflicting emotions and pop culture references with more sort of dour or depressing images like the the frog being slowly boiled alive. I like to do those things in my work, in my in my poetry. I try to balance that feeling of helplessness. When the UN tells us we have, what, seven or eight years left before the climate crisis reaches a tipping point, I take them at their word. So I try to witness my life, the world, through the lens that every summer is going to be hotter and every summer parts of the world are going to be on fire and uh, I'm powerless to stop these things. Uh, So I try to balance that feeling of helplessness with a little humor, but also the feeling of connection that uh, poetry provides. You know, I think poetry can be, I don't know if it's a life preserver or, or a warm blanket or just the possibility that others feel the way that you do too. But I think humor and that feeling of connection poetry provides, those are the things that that help me and I hope it helps my audience as well. A couple of weeks ago at the Wild Riders Festival, I was moderating the poetry panel and I I quoted two poets. I'm going to have to paraphrase them here because I don't have them in front of me. But I talked about Ilya Kaminsky, uh, the Ukrainian-American mm-hmm. poet, who, in response to thinking about, you know, what, what does poetry have to do with Ukrainian people defending themselves against, uh, against, um, against Russia, Putin, uh, Putin's Russia, and he said, well, things are going to get terrible. And when things are terrible, you need to be able to recite words, to, to have that beauty even if you're you know, locked in a bunker and waiting for the bombs to stop, you want to be able to have a poem at your disposal for hope, for belief in beauty, despite everything. And he said, and this is how we survive. This is how we move forward. This is how we don't shut down and, and stay away from our, our emotions. We remember beauty, and that's what poetry is for. And then uh, I think of Dion Brand, who in her book Inventory said, as she logs, she spends the whole uh, book logging these terrible atrocities, people being killed uh, all over the globe. And she said, this is not meant to soothe or comfort you. That's not my job. My job is to list, to um, to add to this bristling list hourly, right, is, right. is the final uh, final words of that poem. And so I asked the poets, I'm going to ask you, <laughs> sure. given these two extremes, 
the poet is uh, poetry is there to remind us of our humanity and beauty and poetry is there to discomfort us and to confront mm -hmm. us with some of our our cruelties and uh our impossible uh problems about how we uh how we treat each other um what do you think how do you balance the two well i agree with both of those statements uh, when I teach poetry to kids, I say, you know, poetry educates our emotions. It teaches us what it means to be human and what it means to be human is not nice a, a, a lot of the time. But then there's great wonder and great beauty and great awe uh, in, in being human. You know, we are given this one wild, precious life, as Mary Oliver said. And, and it's a wonder that we that we have it together at all, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and that we can create art and that we can have children. You know, I remember Tim Bowling, the Canadian poet, bristling uh, when someone said, you know, uh, about having children in this time of, of climate, uh, you know, emergency. And he was like, having children is like the most natural thing for a human being to do everything that you're talking about is so wholly unnatural and and out of our our control but having children and that really made me feel better about my own decision to have children because I wrestle with that I, I worry about the, the world I'm going to leave for my kids my grandkids um, but <clears throat> yeah poetry tells the truth it it, it it will always tell the truth of what it means to be a human being. And uh, certainly I would listen to both the poets that you mentioned. Uh, they, they know what they're talking about. Uh, there is atrocities in the world. There is a great beauty in the world. And those things uh, definitely filter in and um, find their way into my work. More to come from Chris in a minute. But first, let me say that we appreciate that you appreciate our talks with writers living and working in the Grand River region. Our SoundCloud account is chock full of interviews over three and a half seasons, all there for your listening pleasure. Okay, I want to return to uh, the influential poetry book that you and I have both read in the last little sure. while. Um, and I think, you know what, uh, there's a, I, I think this book, uh, Frank, by the American poet uh, Diane Seuss, and she won the Pulitzer for it. Um, and I think there's a, there's a whole, um, you know, sort of Frank fans, right, that were, um, yes. there's a whole bunch of poets who read it and went, oh, I love this, because what part of what she does is she takes the sonnet and she uh, there's been lots of people reimagining the sonnet. The sonnet's enjoying a kind of um, big comeback, really, in the last uh, mm -hmm. decade, uh, uh, in no small part to poets like Seuss, who take it on and mine its form for what it can do by, and also free it from, from some of the restrictions of, uh, of rhyming. Um, yes. But, and that her, her uh, sonnets are deeply confessional and also... Well, it's called Frank for a reason. Right. <laughs> They're very frank. And of course, yeah. there's references to Frank O'Hara and other things. Sure. But uh, but um, the frankness of subject matter, I think, uh, was uh, felt very freeing to me when I was reading it. And of course, I'm, I'm writing Susie and Sonnets now, too. And of course, your final section, the, the section mm -hmm. that you wrote 55 sonnets for and, and reduced it to, did you say 24? 
Yeah, I think I'm 23, 24, something in that area. Yeah. Um, so those two, you know, definitely show that that mark of that kind of influence, oh, which absolutely. I love. I love to see. I love to see all of us thinking through um, the, this series of problems about uh, about form in the contemporary world. Um, so. I've talked a little bit about what I thought was arresting about mm -hmm. uh, Seuss's work. Can you uh, can you expand on that? And did you find something different? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I read Frank. Uh, I, I had heard about it, I think, through my American friend, John Gallagher. And uh, I, I ordered it and uh, read it. And I think I read that book three times in the first week. And I immediately recognized it as uh, a modern classic, like a masterpiece. I know we hate bandying those words around but i think for certain works that is highly appropriate and you know i i always think of like coleridge and his college buddies always calling each other genius and i really wish more people would just do those sort of things uh because i think great things come out of really believing in yourself and i i don't know where diane seuss pulled this book from but holy cow is it just amazing it went through me like a lightning bolt I immediately knew I was going to start using my own life experience again. I was going to try to write uh, 14 line sonnets as a restraint. I knew it would come up very different from how, uh, you know, how could it not uh, than what Seuss does in her book. Uh, so I wrote about 55 sonnets in three months, sometimes two sonnets a day, sometimes only a few a week, but I banged out a whole manuscript of sonnets in very short order. Uh, so I really loved it. I loved it for its frankness, <laughs> excuse the pun, um, and also for just how she was using lines and and uh, how, she, how she could say so much in 14 lines. And that really inspired me to at least uh, have a section of sonnets in this latest collection. And um, you two are very frank in that section. It's the section is called Mirror Bouquet. Yes. And I I really loved it. And I really saw you taking a lot of risks there in terms of, you know, how you approach uh, this personal material, right? And yes. um, a lot of it is about recovery, right? And, it is. And addiction and, you know, forms of success and failure. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I've lived, you know, 53 years on this planet now and... Uh, I've got a lot of good things, you know, behind me, and there are a lot of bad moments in a, in a big bag, you know, that I I carry around on my back, you know, which is the past. And th what I took away from Diane Seuss's book is that she's an older poet now. She has a, a lot of lived experience, and to mine that material and to celebrate the successes but also to witness those failures and really realize that you weren't broken. They didn't break you as a person. I think that is very helpful. So yeah, I think some of the sonnets I've chosen are, are you know, little vignettes or memory poems about different things in my life. And then other of the sonnets feel really like um, new wisdom, you know, that it's emerging from uh, just having lived as long as I have and, and survived the things that I've survived. And, and that feels pretty wonderful. 
You know, I'm just listening to, um, on tape, uh, I'm listening to the comedian Maria Bamford talk about her, uh, about her mental health. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking that is really, <laughs> you know, this is, this is extremely good work because people are going to listen to her because she's extremely funny. But yes. when she talks about why she committed herself to, to a psychiatric hospital, she's not trying to make a joke. She's saying, I, I couldn't do it. I could not go, you know, carry on with my life anymore. And I felt terrible and I needed to have a safe place to, right. Well, my meds were adjusted. And, and, um, and so when I was reading um, mirror bouquet, I thought this too is, is a kind of people, people will read Bamford because she's funny and then they'll get the the mental health piece and people mm -hmm. are going to read your book because it's beautiful and lyrical and then they're going to get the middle uh, the mental health piece right that's right and and to me I, I think that's um you know that's really that's work that that needs to be done it needs to be done not just in uh you know memoirs that purport to be about mental health but in from all kinds of sources right mm-hmm like, uh, you know, like lyric poetry, where people might not expect to begin to read that kind of um, poetry about life experience, but they do, and they will. Well, that's, that's the thing, right? When I was coming up, uh, alcohol was such a big part of the literary scene. There was this sort of unspoken maxim, write hard, drink hard, really, you know, write hard, play hard. And I, I don't think that's the case anymore. I hope it's not the case anymore. I certainly, I look at my stepson's uh, age, and they don't seem to be at all interested in drinking as a as a culture, as a subculture, in the way that we did when we were uh, younger. So I'm hoping, yeah, <laughs> people will read these these poems and and really understand that it can take you really take your life apart. Uh, even when I decided I was going to stop drinking, uh, I could stop for a week or three weeks or three months, but I couldn't stay stop. stop. There was no um, ability to to stay stop. I would become very depressed. Um, you know, I, I was sober for two whole years before I drank again for another 18 months and, and went to rehab. So, and that really was, uh, and even after rehab, I, it was about six more months where I off and on I would drink. So, um, it's not easy, even when you decide I'm not going to live my life as a drunk or as uh, as an addict any longer. Uh, there's so much anxiety and fear when you can't just stay stopped. Uh, so I hope people read these poems and enjoy the poems as as poems, but also if it helps people with their own mental health struggles. Hey, uh, that's that's great because, yeah, I live with dual disorders and I'm very open about it. Um, and I came through the other side. Can I have you uh, read a little more from uh, Alternator? Sure. I will read one of the sonnets, I guess. Okay, I'm going to read a poem um, about the eye, the lyric eye. Do you mind if I get personal? The eye is just a placeholder in this poem anyway. The self that writes truth is simply a kingdom of telling, not of facts is not the self that will read this a day later, crossing out words, adding new ones, hoping it all leads to some sort of elegance or understanding which sounds boring and ordinary, I know. The eye knows what it knows, but at least the words come out half right in the declining light. 
though few care as passionately as me. The me who wants to be moved by poems. Me who wants to know all the ways of knowing what people think about outer planets and clouds and wind-fallen apples. So I read books. The I inside writes some too. Language is the real school. I sit in the back of the class looking out a window at a small grove of trees where sits a giant bronze sundial, the hours growing late. Thank you for reading that. I was definitely going to ask you about the lyric I and uh, whether you found that it had taken on a different quality since you had been away from writing about your experience for a while and was now uh, returning to it. Uh, well, th yeah, uh, the lyric I, I always think of um, what uh, Jack Gilbert said about the lyric I, which was, you know, he wants to trust the I. What, what is all this suspicion around writing in the first person was how he put it. He says, I want to believe in the speaker. It's like biting into true gold. Uh, that was the t test for him, you know, if you could write uh, a persuasive um, poem from the first person. So yeah, I, I hear all the arguments about it and I certainly don't do it all the time, but it just felt uh, important to come back to that. Certainly my first several books, uh, I embraced that lyric I in, in those in bonfires in the cold panes of surfaces and in winter cranes in particular. Uh, so yeah, it was important to me to, to talk about that, to stick up for the lyric I in one of the sonnets. So yeah. I, uh, I always think of Di Brandt's um, epigraph uh, in uh, Questions I Asked My Mother, where she writes, some of this is autobiographical and some of it is not. Right. Period. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and I know that she put that because people were like, well, wait, what are the fantasy bits and what are the real bits? And I need to know the difference. And she's like, I'm not sure I know the difference. And I'm not sure <laughs> I'm going to dic dictate that to you either. Right. Right. Um, and I'm and speaking of epigraphs, I was uh, curious about your edition of um, this from uh, Kim Adonizio. Uh, Writing is like firing a nail gun into the center of a vanity mirror. Okay, yeah, I, 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 I such an evocative image. And then I was thinking of collecting all those bits and then wrapping them up with tissue paper, which is why I came up with that idea of mirror bouquet to name the sonnet sequence. Um, because I think you take fragments, you take shards of memories, shards of the past, and you kind of put them together and they kind of reflect elements of yourself or your personality, but who you thought you were at 25 and who you thought you were at 30. And now I'm realizing, you know, at 53, I wasn't such a terrible person uh, when I was 40. Um, your perspective changes, right? Uh, and so I think uh, I, I think that is what I was trying to accomplish with uh, with Mira Bouquet and and at least how I saw uh, Adonisio, you know, uh, writing that line. You know, I'm not even sure I'm the same person I was on Tuesday. Exactly right. You know, <laughs> uh, and, and this is one reason, one struggle I have with uh, social media and you know posting statuses. I just think I can post a status, but it's going to be different in an hour, right? Yeah, exactly. And so it seems to suggest a kind of permanence, or at least a dailiness of it, a quotidian. And I'm just like, I, yeah, 
it, things change really, really quickly for me. So I like that that idea of when you're talking about sort of the multiple selves, the same self that writes this won't be the same self that looks at it tomorrow. I want to talk about something else that's going on now that we've um, worked over that that sonnet idea. I really like the way you work and rework the declarative short phrase. Right. I'm thinking of the thinking mostly of the poems in the center section. These statements come come close to being aphorisms, but I think they also avoid being aphorisms by the speed at which they come with you. Like they seem to resist um, the aphorisms' truth conditions. And I'm thinking of, I found one of the poems that I think does this a lot or really pushes it to extremes and it's Karaoke Machine on page 52. Yes. Right. And I think too, I mean, with the, um, with the title that it is supposed to be a kind of performance right a repetitive performance of the of the karaoke machine and and mouthing someone mouthing someone else's lyrics etc right um sure. but these um these short phrases or short sentences come very quickly at the reader can you read a like a little piece of that so we can uh, we can hear how okay. it sounds i'll just read the first little bit of it follow the bouncing ball of late stage capitalism too bad you can't sing along to it this poem is sans Wi-Fi, so stop asking for my password. What emotion did I leave unleashed in the backyard all afternoon? Just ask the kids next door. They want their baseball back and blue oceans. This is a field guide for old commercial jingles. My French-made costume is worn at the seams. This party is going to last another three decades. Sadly, friends, the karaoke machine is broken. So that's the first section. Yes. So tell me about that, because that's a very different kind of tonality than what we were getting in the sonnets, where it's narrative, mm -hmm. right? And it's lyric, and we can hear the story that is being interwoven. And this is like, you know, a series of fragments that are put together. Right. right? Uh, like a mosaic that is put together. Uh, so each of those reflects off each other, but doesn't actually tell a story as we understand the narrative to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sort of interested in the idea of poetry, not so much as music, like a lot of people talk about that, especially with lyric poetry, but more uh, being in tune with sculpture or collage. So I love that you said mosaic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the idea of aphorisms uh i'm playing with a little bit in this new manuscript i'm working on i i came up with uh not really they're sort of aphoristic i came up with 30 uh, fortune cookie fortunes and i'm calling it uh fortune cookies fool uh, that play on that shakespearean fortunes fool title yeah like the next book i'm i'm toying with calling it a gazala of non sequiturs of course Lorca had his gazala of the dark death so I like the idea of writing little odes to disassociated ideas, to disconnection. And I'm hoping with poems like Karaoke Machine that even though there's all of this sort of disassociated stuff happening, I think ironically, uh, people then feel a deep connection to my, my work or my voice because so much of the time our, of our modern lives, we do feel a little lost at sea with how much information is coming at us in a given day, like the amount of decisions that we are forced to make every day based on uh, this sensory overload that comes at us. So I think a poem like uh, Karaoke Machine, I was really interested in playing with that idea of, of quick aphoristic lines 
and then swerving immediately away, but then coming back. Uh, I think of people like um, Richard Hugo, who said, um, you know, as, as long as you have a stable base for the poem, you, you can fly freely away from it, a little more freely away from it. So I like that idea. So in that poem, I think us, the stable base is really just sort of, you know, modern anxiety and the, that, that, again, that idea of late stage capitalism and moving around and in climate change. And, and so it does paint a, a more of a collage or a sculpture almost uh, as opposed to, a, you know, a piece of music that has a beginning, a middle and an end. Were you quoting uh, uh, Richard Hugo from The Triggering Town? Yes, I was. Yeah. Okay. That's I think such you a were... great collection. And I talk about it all the time because they're there. I read a lot of uh, prose and essays about poetry and uh, some of the best writers of poetry for me are people like Richard Hugo's The Triggering Town, people like uh, Donald Hall, his uh, landmark collection, you know, that he edited called Claims for Poetry. Uh, and of course, Dean Young's uh, The Art of Recklessness, those would be the three that I would really recommend and had the most impact on me over the years. For me, I think it would have to be Mary Rufel's essays, uh, especially um, um, Lectures I Will Never Give, which I <laughs> which I thought was so great. Um, yes. Anyway, good. I, I, just, I was pleased to hear um, Hugo because I, I don't hear people... Um, recommending him much anymore no he's um, and, I, and i really like now. him yeah i really yeah, like he's him great. He's great. um okay now i saw that not too long ago you were shortlisted for the edna stabler essay prize yes that is given out annually by uh the new quarterly and you and i have talked a little bit before um off microphone about the relationship between poetry and nonfiction. And uh, mm -hmm. in part because, you know, I started out as a poet too, and I still write uh, poems, but I also have sort of a whole other, um, whole other pursuit in nonfiction. And my friend, the BC writer, Yvonne Blomer, gave a talk a number of years ago that I really liked about being a poet who was writing nonfiction uh, in which she called poetry and nonfiction, the best of cousins. Right. I love that, right? I, I've leaned on that phrase many times when thinking about their connections. Um, how are you thinking about the relationship between writing poetry and writing nonfiction? We spent a ton of time today talking about poetry, but let's hear mm -hmm. about this best of cousins as, as you're thinking about it. Well, I, I saw the wonderful Emily Urquhart read from her uh, creative nonfiction book, uh, Ordinary Wonder Tales, uh, last year here in Kitchener. And it really struck me as I listened to her read that although I do not write fiction, uh, that I could probably write some personal essays, uh, especially I have the, the lyricism to do it, uh, but I was always uh, too scared to try. And just listening to, to Emily read her beautiful essays um, about her life, and I was like, this is something I can do. Uh, so I went home and wrote uh, an essay called Black Hammers Falling in About Five Days. And that's the essay that was shortlisted for the Edna Stabler Award. And it's about alcoholism and rehab and single parenting and uh, relapse and, you know, deeply shameful things. But I feel much better having written the essay. And I've written many more since then. And I have a, a collection out now at different publishers uh, to see, you know, it, it, because it's a weird little little book. It's a book about um, recovery. It's a book about depression. 
it's a book about poetry. There's lots of essays in there about poetry as well. So it 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 will hopefully be a book that will reach multiple audiences. Um, but we will wait and see. But right now, I am enjoying writing writing uh, lyric essays for sure. Could you uh, read us a slice of one of them? Uh, let me see if I can pull one up for you. Uh, right. So the collection is called Black Hammers Falling. And so I can probably read a piece about depression, maybe. Maybe I'll do that. Okay. okay let me just find uh, the... Okay, on depression in poetry. So I will read this to you. So my dad was a police officer uh, for 40 years, and he started off in Milton, Ontario. And he uh, came across a World War I veteran one night uh, who was struck by a train. And it was, uh, he told me this story when I was very, very young. Uh, so I, I always been haunted by this image and so um uh i don't know if i can find it sorry guys it's okay yeah let me just see here okay let me just see if i can find it um okay so this is uh an essay just uh talking about on depression and uh the relation between relationship between depression and um and poetry my father told me a story about when he was a young policeman working in milton ontario he was called to the scene of a suicide a veteran of the first world war had stood in the middle of the night saluting on railroad tracks letting a train run him down it's a harrowing image one that still haunts me as a young person, I found it hard to believe anyone could be in that much pain or feel so abused by life's ups and downs. He or she would choose to end it in such a dramatic fashion. Then I became a teenager, and the first signs of depression began to manifest themselves in my own life. I remember being bullied in grade 7 and 8 to the point I began to stammer in front of my peers. I was kicked and punched daily, had my property stolen, every conceivable obscenity flung at me. The worst was when the young bully wiped his nose on my shirt. His mother was a teacher at my school, so I felt no one would listen to me, and therefore I was on my own. Such taunting drove me deep inside myself where I cultivated inner resources of the imagination, which would serve me later on in life when I actually decided to become a poet, but it also made me deeply distrustful of my surroundings. At the time, I did not think of myself as depressed, just a victim of moving to a small northern town where few kids liked me. It was later in my 20s as an undergrad that I suffered my first major depressive episode as an adult. A girl I had been dating for a few years broke up with me and started dating a mutual friend. I remember having suicidal thoughts for the first time. I could not sleep or eat. I lost 10 pounds. I recovered slowly over a few years. But I eventually graduated with honors and moved to Montreal, where my mental health stabilized. Since that time, I have suffered at least three personal doozies, as Jim Harrison once said of his own depressive episodes. The last one persisting for three years before I went to the emergency ward at the hospital and was able to talk to a psychiatrist who finally prescribed a regimen of meds that worked for me. Now, depression is a hard thing to talk about, not simply because of the shame or feelings of personal weakness it engenders, 
but because of the fear, it might actually come back. Something about invoking one's demons, here be monsters. If writing is elation, intoxication, depression is its opposite, suffocation, a feeling like there's a slow leak and all the air is leaving the world. It is also crippling exhaustion, panic, and anxiety, which makes it painful, especially for what loved ones to interact with the depressed person. For the depressive who feels most often apart from the world and other people, stuck on invisible railroad tracks with their neuroses bearing down on them, it is vitally important to understand that experience is malleable, a poem is transformative, it offers a way to connect and share with other human beings when no other way seems possible. Why I have depression, bad genes, a nasty drug my mother took when she was pregnant with me, childhood trauma hardly seems important. The truth is chronic major depression has been a constant in my adult life, ruining my relationships with people I care most about. And no amount of exercise, medications, or therapy has made it go away for good. The, that poetry and the imagination can help me forget this burden a while, or even at times to feel like a whole person is a spiritual fact and allows me to keep going. Great, thank you so much. I, um, I'm very happy to hear some of this, uh, some of this nonfiction, um, especially nonfiction that talks about you know, what artistic creation can, can do for the brain in distress. Right, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. Like, I wouldn't say, you know, my poetry is therapy, but it is too. Like I, I have to do it. I remember moving away from Montreal and vowing never to write poems again, because I was so upset that I had failed, failed at this thing that I cared so, so passionately about. And that lasted for eight months. And then I wrote another poem and I just realized I'm going to write poems my entire life. I am this thing called a poet now that I've been hoping to be. And, and then of course my poetry started getting much better within about two or three years. I was on my way to writing bonfires. That's great. I, I love that. I love, I love those, those stories where, you know, you don't, you don't get a big, you know, a big lucrative contract the moment you graduate with your no. MFA, but you you work with your life and you work with it and you work with it and then things change. They gradually get better. That's right. Yeah. I think we don't have enough of those stories. I think we have too many stories <laughs> of instant success. And I think well, that's... that's the thing. And that's why I always uh, give shout outs to Silas White and Nightwood Editions, who literally pulled bonfires off of a you know, a slush pile and invited me to Toronto and told me they still weren't going to do the book, but that they loved certain poems and that they would do a book with me when I'm ready. I don't know who does that anymore, but oh, mm. that, that was transformative for me. That's great. Okay. Shout out to, to Silas for sure. Yeah. And thank you for joining us uh, today, Chris. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Tannis. It's been a lovely chat. Chris Banks' latest book is Alternator, out this fall from Nightwood Editions, and it is available wherever fine books are sold. Remember to support your local independent bookstore as well as your local literary writers like Chris Banks, who live in the Grand River watershed. Some of our favorites are Wordsworth Books in Waterloo, Rookery Books in Cambridge, The Brantford Bookworm, and Good Minds Books at the Six Nations of the Grand River. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode. Coming up on the podcast, we talk with Susan Braley about her new book, Tilling the Darkness, about growing up on a farm in the area and discovering her feminist self. We are always looking out for writers in the region, and if you know someone you'd like to hear us interview, drop us a line and let us know. Midwinter can be a low period for many people. Gray skies, all that weird talk about new beginnings that don't feel very new. So be kind to whomever you can, rest whenever you can, and know too that Canada's new Mental Health Crisis Helpline has been launched for fast and free assistance. Anyone can call, and there will be help at the other end of the line. The number for the Nationwide Mental Health Crisis Helpline in Canada is 988. It is okay to ask for help. You deserve it. Francis Roberts Riley is the founder and producer of Watershed Riders. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And I am Tannis McDonald, your host and voracious reader. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. Oh, no.